Welcome to The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Seth Pierman, Attorney General to the Flandreau Santee Sioux Tribe. Seth is a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. The tribe's reservation is within the interior boundaries of South Dakota and is located north of the Sioux Falls, just west of the Minnesota border. Like so many tribes in the United States, after being placed on reservations, their relationships with the United States and the state of South Dakota have often been contentious. In the modern era, Flandreau prioritizes the long-term, the steady, and the immediate needs of its people. It embraces self-determination and seeks ways to support the health and welfare of its citizens by exploring economic opportunities. The tribe first explored cannabis in 2015, and then in the summer of 2021, it opened Native Nations Cannabis, a medical cannabis facility on the reservation. The facility serves First Nation and non-Indigenous patients from the region, and in less than a year, it has a patient base of 8,000, which is more than all the medical cannabis patients in the state combined. Welcome, Seth. We're glad to have you on the vine. Well, thank you so much. Uh, so happy to have you. So, Maybe you can start off by explaining your position um, in the tribe. And uh, we were talking off camera a little bit about um, how you are a member or a citizen of one tribe and the attorney general of the tribe that has this cannabis business. And just a little bit about your background and your story and, and then how medical cannabis sort of uh, came to be something that you all were interested in pursuing. That sounds fantastic. And thank you so much. Like, uh, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, which is in the middle of our state. And I grew up on the reservation. Um, my family was pretty much agricultural growing up. So when everybody was going to spring break, I was going back home to help uh, calve out our cattle. Um, I had went to college because I was not interested in ranching full time. And Let's see, my second year of um, of law school, I got an internship with Frederick Peebles and Morgan, uh, which is a, a boutique Indian law firm that uh, represents tribal governments and organizations across the country. And one of the tribes that I worked for was the Flandre Santee Sioux Tribe. So that summer, I did quite a bit of work for them, did some code revisions and that sort of thing. And in my third year, President Reeder uh, called and hired me on as their their in-house counsel or attorney general. Actually, I was an intern until I got uh, past the bar exam, and then they put me into my full-time position. So I've been there 12 years now, 11 years. Wow. wow. Congrats on that. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun, and we've done some very unique things, and cannabis is definitely one of them. So how did cannabis become a part of this? Like, When, when did you decide that cannabis was something that you wanted to pursue? So we had followed the industry quite a bit and, you know, early there were very few conferences and things like that. You know, we're, we're very active in the um, National Indian Gaming Association, National Congress of American Indians, um, Native American Finance Officers Association, some of these national groups that represent tribal interests and that sort of thing. And we're not seeing, weren't seeing anything on cannabis. 
but of course, all around us. Um, and I'm, I'm the attorney general of the tribe. So I also oversee the prosecution of crime on the reservation. Um, and I've worked very closely to our counterparts, both the state and federal systems. You know, we could see cannabis being sold legally without much issue in other jurisdictions, California, Colorado at that point. And we were kind of wondering why, as a sovereign, we weren't participating in this. So we had quite a few discussions. We started going to different, uh, you know, a few early conferences about tribal cannabis. And then in 2014, the Cole and Wilkinson memorandum were issued by the Department of Justice that basically said, so long as you follow these eight criteria, um, you are not a prosecutorial not you're not a prosecutorial uh, priority for us, and those were pretty simple things. You know, don't manage operations with guns, don't uh, allow cartels to participate, keep out of the hands of uh, children, don't allow it on federal lands, that sort of thing. And if if programs were doing that in states, this U.S. attorneys in those states took a very hands-off approach. The Wilkinson Memorandum was the second one, and that basically applied the same thing to Indian Country. So at that point. The tribal council, at that, uh, who is the legislative body of the tribe, came to me and said, we want to do cannabis, uh, draft us an ordinance. So that's what we did. Can you imagine a better you? Empathic Health is a global community providing support so you can find more fun, freedom, and connection in your life. Empathic Health is my integration solution for incorporating my healing work into my daily routine. Empathic Health has given me a space to use my voice, to express my thoughts, and be myself in a safe place. I'm excited to get to the type of work that gives my life more clarity and joy. Helping others has done nothing but help me in return. Know your medicine, know yourself. Join Elizabeth, myself, and the rest of the community today at empathic.health. Now, does it matter if South Dakota is a medical or an adult use market, or does that not matter on the reservation? On the reservation, it does not. So what we looked at back then was because South Dakota was um, uh, had no legalized cannabis in any form and actually had some of the worst laws on books as it pertained to cannabis. For instance, if somebody had a like an edible that they had brought from Colorado or some other place and uh, brought it back to South Dakota and they were caught with it because it's in an altered form, you know, meaning that some process had been done to cannabis so that it wasn't just a flower itself. They were facing felony jail time because of it. Whoa. (laughs) The state was prosecuting those. And I'm, I know people personally who have spent time in our state penitentiary because of it. Mm. Um, So it was very relevant. And then the first ordinance we drafted, which was passed in June 11th of 2015, we created a, sort of a micro economy where we would grow cannabis on our facility, you know, on our grounds. And then we would allow people to come onto the reservation, consume a very small amount, one or two grams at a time, and then either stay at our facility because we have a, a hotel and resort that they could stay with or to get a safe ride home. In that way, we were only having people consume on the reservation and their off reservation consequences, um, you know, as long as they're getting home safe should be okay. So that's that's how we started. Um, in 2015, the tribe renovated a former maintenance building that it had, just a steel structure, and basically turned it into a state-of-the-art cannabis, cannabis cultivation facility, which we still utilize today. 
and uh, began growing plants. So you had the first consumption lounge, (laughs) 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 letting people come on the reservation. I mean, that's beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) We we didn't quite get that far. Um, But uh, when you talk about consumption lounge, I think that's one of the big things in Indian country that we can do to differentiate ourselves from state markets. Most state markets prohibit public consumption of cannabis Mm -hmm. in general, but... You know, we've really discovered that, especially patients at our dispensary, have very little information or personal knowledge about each product. So it would kind of makes sense to give very small doses or small amounts of cannabis to people um, so that they could see what they like, so that they could purchase something and leave. You know, there's some stuff that we make that, you know, tests well above 32, 33% THC, which is pretty strong. I'm not a, mm-hmm. a frequent user, but that would be enough for me to uh, have a very docile weekend is what I'll say, I guess. Right. But, <laughs> right. but, you know, having something like that where people could come on site and consume, you know, to taste and, and figure out what products they like, but also, uh, on the recreational side, once a tribe or state were, were, uh, decided that it wanted to do adult use where someone could come on, uh, consume safely and, you know, possibly even have rides and stuff like that home. That's something that, doesn't have or the states I don't think will have for quite some time. So can you explain a little bit about um, how you're protected as a sovereign nation and what kind of laws you have to abide by? So, um, you know, you can let patients try cannabis. Um, Can you say, say, you know, this sovereign nation is adult use now? Or is that something that, that how do you decipher those laws and what are they? <laughs> sure. So if we take a look back at even how the first interaction with tribes and the government, the federal government started, you know, we existed far before, you know, the state of South Dakota or other states, most tribes did. Um, and we have a very unique relationship with the government that has been, you know, founded in, in the United States Constitution. You know, Congress controls interstate commerce with tribes. Um, and has been enumerated in quite a few Supreme Court cases that still basically frame out our entire landscape. There's been some very large cases that have come out in the last couple of years that continue to take that supreme con or that's that same concept of you know the the relationship with governments exists between the federal government, and the tribes, and not necessarily between the states and the tribes. And if we kind of take that big perspective into place that states may not, interfere with our programs unless Congress gives them the authorization to do so. That's how we can get this done. Um, If you take a look at like California versus Cabazon, which is a Supreme Court case that everybody, you know, asserts is the, you know, the manifestation of Indian gaming that basically said the states didn't have the authority to enter to regulate gaming in Indian country. And then, you know, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act passed and that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, people only think of that for gaming. But the real concept there is that states don't have civil regulatory authority over the tribes. And therefore, you know, much like cannabis, where Congress hasn't said, OK, states, you have a you have the right to enforce this on the reservation. The state, therefore, has no right to come in and say anything about what we're doing. So you could be adult use tomorrow if you wanted. Or yeah. you are. 
Uh, we aren't adult use now. You know, the biggest issue that we face is we don't want individuals to come to our facility um, and then leave and face, you know, arrest or prosecution right. off of our board. And, you know, unfortunately, even with the very tight and stringent program we put in now, some local state's attorney in South Dakota are still prosecuting marijuana crimes. You know, we participated in the summer studies and a lot of things that, um, you know, the state put on to kind of get cannabis figured out. And there were state's attorneys who basically said, uh, you know, with this new law, you know, with this medical marijuana law, I can't prosecute anybody who, you know, is possessing marijuana and has a valid doctor's prescription. And we're thinking, duh, that's the point of this whole thing. <laughs> 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 we can't prosecute anymore. That's right. Oh, man. I'm really like <clears throat> interested to learn more about Native Nations cannabis. I watched a video prior to the interview that saw a beautiful facility yeah. with some very organic plants growing. So I wanted to know if you could share with us a little bit about your operations. Absolutely. <clears throat> so we have, like I said, that same facility that we were utilizing before. It's about 8,000 square feet of cultivation space. Um, we can go either from seed or from clones so that it's a, a very robust system. Um, I think we have roughly between nine and 10,000 plants at any one time. Um, we have a state-of-the-art processing facility. So we can take, you know, any type of, well, not any type, but most types of gas, like very uh, concentrated ethanol or uh, propane and make um, very, very high quality concentrates for vaping pens, uh, you know, for edibles, that sort of thing. And we can also do um, diamond, crackle, shatter, wax, you know, any, almost any product that you could imagine that people would like to see we can do. Um, we have our own dispensary on the reservation um, where we have, I think, one, six terminals where patients can come in after they get our own medical card and can purchase products from us. Um, our limits that we sell are less than the state. Uh, and a lot of that's due to one, the state of South Dakota allows up to uh, three ounces to be purchased at one time. Uh, we allow one ounce of flour to be purchased per day and up to four grams of concentrate. And we were just concerned with that amount, that three ounce, that it could lead to diversion, which we're obviously opposed to. Um, and it helps limit our, you know, basically in supply and demand constraints with their current facilities. So it's it's been helpful to us. And really right now, we've only been selling an eighth of flour at a time because we simply don't have enough space to uh, grow more right now. Uh, we've got two buildings on the reservation that we're, that are very close to coming online. Um, that would be additional cultivation space. Those would be about, let's see, another 20,000 square feet. Right now we can grow anywhere between 65 and 80 pounds of cannabis a week. And then when those facilities are done, we should be closer to, I would guess, 150 or maybe 200 pounds a week. We also uh, purchased a facility in Mitchell, South Dakota, which is west of us on state land. It's a former Shopco. I don't know if you have Shopco's where you're at, but kind of like a Kmart or large department store uh, that has since gone bankrupt. And we bought it at auction and the tribe intends to use that for cultivation too. And that'll be 76,000 square feet. So that'll be a very big facility. But it's not on your land. It's on state land, you said. Correct. 
it, it gets complicated, right? You have to live then by the state's laws if you're producing or growing on the state's land, correct? That's correct. So for that facility, we would go seek a state license as well as a license from the city of Mitchell uh, to operate our facility. Got it. So you said that you were allowing um, patients, non-Indigenous, veterans, and so forth. So really, your mix of clientele, it can be anyone, right? I, I could fly out there and come to your reservation and stay. And would I use my medical card or? Yep. If you have a medical card from another state, we yeah. would have you come in front of our uh, Cannabis Control Commission to verify that that's uh, legitimate. You would still pay the fee to have a card issued from us. Okay. And a lot of it, you know, it's not just the card. So we use a, a seed to sale tracking system like most responsible cultivators. And our card system literally feeds directly into our, our inventory management. So we can see how much somebody's purchasing. And if they start to exceed that, or if we see, you know, somebody's coming in every day and buying an ounce, well, perhaps that's a lot for one person to consume. So those kind of things can trigger our system so that we know, um, you know, that we should be paying a little more attention to some folks. The other thing that's very important about our cards in that system is if we had a product recall for something, say, uh, E. coli and a baked good or something like that, we can then reach out to everybody through email, telephone, um, text messaging to let them know, hey, you know, don't consume this, bring it back and we'll replace it. So it's it's kind of a dual dual process and it's just not a, ma- a matter of trying to grab 50 bucks from people. But you're right. We serve our, I don't know what our average age is, but on most days you can see a line of people that are at least 20, you know, 30 people deep. Wow. Um, we have people in there from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. And it's not what you, what I think a South Dakota legislator would um, expect because it's elderly people who are trying to wean themselves off of opioids that they've been prescribed for the last 20 years for pain, um, cancer patients, epilepsy. I mean, all of this other stuff that we've seen dramatically benefited from just our patients. And a lot of them have never tried cannabis before at all. And I'm curious about like for the Sioux people, you know, what does cannabis mean? You know, is there something special about the cannabis plant that's maybe connected to your culture or spirituality? So, um, you know, as a, as a, you know, Lakota, Dakota people, um, we've really taken the perspective that, you know, we're all on mother earth and you need to really respect her. You know, we've participated actively in some of the pipeline protests and that sort of thing, because it's, there's a concept of everything that you take, you have to give back. And that simply isn't a concept that's been uh, remunerated by non-Indians in our country, um, which we've seen a lot of devastation of not only historical places, but um, of our environment. You know, we've looked at hemp as well, just because of, in our area, we're very agricultural. And because of a basic, you know, corn and, and soybean rotation, we see a lot of soil erosion and other things that have led to silting in our rivers and just a myriad of things. So we looked at even hemp for agricultural purposes um, to kind of benefit the environment. I also think generally, although I've never found any documented, um, you know, uh, stories of the use of cannabis uh, for individuals beyond, there was one 
thing. And I didn't know if it was just more of an oral history, you know, our being that we were pretty nomadic in the past, we have very little written history of our tribes. So we were following basically the Buffalo and then camping in different places because of the brutal climate so that we could survive. Um, there's not much in the form of documentation that says, okay, you know, tribes used cannabis for X, Y, and Z. But um, I have heard from individuals that when, you know, hemp, hemp has grown around us for however long. I mean, it's probably since the dawn of time. But I was told that there were individuals who would give horses at times, either hemp or and it could have been higher concentrate than THC of, you know, 0.3%. So it could be marijuana. They gave those to their horses to calm them. But um, just as a, you know, the use of traditional herbs and that sort of thing to help versus a pharmaceutical is something that fits very well within tribes. And I hope is replicated. We have such trouble with uh, controlled substances in the form of prescription pills and that sort of thing. And uh, we'd really like to get away from that and hope that people could find some uh, beneficial use from cannabis versus those other products. How does the money work? in, in, um, a tribe and, and for cannabis, for example. So you, you don't have to pay the federal government anything The the money is stays within the tribe, correct? Yep. That's right. So the money's a little different. And, you know, one of the biggest things across the industry is banking. Um, you know, there's 700 banks that bank cannabis funds right now, uh, they're never going to put it on their website because it's very hush hush. Um, the suspicious, you know, in 2014, the Department of Treasury issued a, some FinCEN guidance, is what we call it, that basically said, "Here's how you launder money," because <laughs> they were having the same issue that, "Hey, we don't have, um, you know, we we understand a lot of states have legalized uh, have legalized cannabis. We want." people not to have cash stuffed in mattresses and, you know, cause it's very unsafe. They, they said, here's what you need to do. File a sus- suspicious activity report and, uh, and that sort of thing, just to acknowledge that this is a, um, a controlled substance, but not necessarily not afford people banking. Um, and just, I think in, two, in 2020, 170,000 suspicious activity reports, um, were filed just for marijuana related businesses. Um, and it was a little strange for us because we didn't have banking until very recently. So we started on a completely cash basis. Uh, it was, and it's a very profitable business. So it was us finding safety deposit boxes around the city of Sioux Falls in our area to stuff cash. It was not a comfortable position for us because as sophisticated governments, we're very used to having annual audits and all this other stuff and, and cash management policies that we were uh, just lacking the bank to really participate with. But now, luckily, we do have banking, so we're, we're in much better shape. <laughs> and do you have your own banking system on the um, reservation as well? We do not. So we've depended on either state or uh federally licensed Got institutions by banking for, you know, the last, however long the tribes had accounts at certain banks. Got it. Yeah. No, South Dakota bank is accepting cannabis receipts right now. So 
the banking relationships that we have are out of state. It is just, this is just a constant conversation we have speaking with everyone in this industry. I mean, literally, like I love your analogy of like stuffing money underneath a mattress because it's like true. It's like we we know that this is a booming industry and yet this is still such a massive problem. And to know that you have to still bank off the reservation, I mean, it, this is still an issue that's affecting us all. And that makes me question, you know, what does the state of South Dakota feel about all of this with you? Like, I mean, in the history of, of the tribe, you know, there's been some contentiousness, but now what? Now you're throwing cannabis in the mix. Like, what does the state feel about it? You know, we, we kind of look at the will of the people. I mean, it was the people who got this legalized, you know, both through the initiated measure and Amendment A through the petition process. I mean, it was it was surprising even to me that the voter turnout was so high. For medical marijuana last fall, it was seven, nearly 70%, maybe even 72% of our voters were in favor of medical marijuana. And uh, I think 53 or 54% of the state were in favor of adult use. This didn't immediately trickle down to the politicians in the state, however. So when the government's, when the governor, Governor Christy Noem, started uh, dealing with cannabis, she was obviously not very pleased with it because she sued you know, her own people when it pertained to fighting Amendment A. And then... Through the legislative process last session, we have a very short legislative process. It's 40 days from basically January to March in South Dakota. Um, there were constant attempts to attack a program that hadn't even been established or that existed. So it's it's something that I I just don't think that the all of the politicians realize, hey, your people want this. It's not a scary thing. Inform yourself of what's going on as opposed to constantly fighting it. Because I do think that this upcoming term, cannabis is going to be on the ballot again because adult use is going back through. And people are going to have a really hard time getting reelected when they've completely ignored the will of the people to have structured, well-regulated cannabis in place. I, I Hallelujah. I, I agree with you. And it goes right on up to the president. Um so the Controlled Substance Act um, sort of muddies the water, I'm assuming. And I'm wondering um, what, I know that you will come to D.C. from time to time, sort of what you all um, are lobbying for and what sort of challenges are you facing um, with the federal government? Sure. So we're... We've been in D.C. at least twice this year, and we'll, we'll continue to be there and continue working with our representatives. I mean, it started even last year uh, in Section 531 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act that comes out every year. And it's not necessarily that same number, but basically it's a section that provides, uh, you know, the Department of Justice is defunded from enforcing the controlled substance and other federal laws in certain states. And it just has a list of every state that has legal medical marijuana. So after South Dakota legalized last fall, I went and pulled up the act itself and South Dakota was not on the list. So we'd reached out to our congressional folks and said, hey, we must be in this, you know, call it a technical change, whatever it needs to be to get it done. And they did. Oh, that's so awesome. we got in our place. It's, it doesn't provide, you know, legalization, but provide some cover for a medical program, uh, much like ours. But when you're talking about 
what are we trying to get back to? I mean, it's it's this concept of self-determination that we've, the tribes are self-determined and have the right to self-govern that was established in the 1970s even that we've seen basically expand yearly so that policy driven by both Congress and the White House have been, you know, very acknowledging of tribal sovereignty and have authorized, you know, tribes to not only make make the laws, but to be ruled by them. Um, the concept that we're facing now with marijuana is that it's almost, we feel like we're being left out. So a lot of the bills that have come out is, for instance, the Safe Banking Act, which was released you know, some time ago and is still kind of undergoing some changes, did a really nice job in the first few sections of acknowledging tribal sovereignty and acknowledging that tribes also need banking as it pertains to this. But then went back to say that in the definition section, which they put way at the end of the bill, which was a little concerning, I don't know if it was a strategic or not, but uh, to be a legitimate cannabis business in that bill, you had to be a state licensed entity. So we're thinking, okay, fantastic. And everybody's reading through this. They get it. They get the tribes of their own government. I mean, there's 576 of us across the country. <clears throat> and then to say, well, you can bank, but if only if you're state licensed. And like I said, we'll have both state licensed and non-state licensed facilities. But our position is everything that's on the reservation is completely outside of the scope of the state's regulatory authority, which is also what you know, basically federal law provides. So we're really looking for just parity. I mean, we just want to be treated like a state. We want the right to say, and some, some tribes simply will not want cannabis on their tribal lands, which is fine. You know, that's a, that's a decision for them. Um, but if a state legalizes all around them, they're almost forced to take a position on marijuana where they could also, you know, possibly say, we're not, we're not wanting to do this at all. Because they lose the revenue. I mean, they, then they don't get a piece of the revenue. You're a hundred percent right. And based on all this on reservation, you know, value added activities and jobs, it's a big industry and to start shifting that money to another government that's not doing anything to benefit the industry is problematic in my mind. So we need to get the, the acts need to include that the banking is not needed to have a state license for the sovereign nations. Like that's what needs, that's the piece that needs to get added to this right now. Right. So the, the drafts that we've seen from some of these have been very paternalistic. I mean, it's okay. Well, if you let the state handle this, then you're fine, which is just simply not a concept that we've dealt with in the last 15 years. You know, there's very little that the state manages for the tribe uh, because it just isn't trickling down properly to it. You know, we've had substantial litigation where we have had, you know, it was a two week trial and I want to say 2019 where we had various individuals from state um, agencies because it was related to taxes. It was on a casino. Um, we asked, what services do you provide to the reservation? And the court, you know, Judge Schreier in the uh, you know, federal district here in South Dakota said that she couldn't find, you know, that basically found that the state hadn't provided anything in the form of services that were trickling down to the tribes themselves. Hmm. It was laughable. They, they wanted a, um, they wanted 
contractor's excise tax on a renovation project on our tribal land that the tribe was completely paying for, they wanted that taxation to go to their general fund. And they said, well, doesn't everybody benefit from having a clean capital building? I mean, that was some of their justification. Unbelievable. <laughs> right. Wow. So now if Elizabeth and I wanted to come and visit you, um, because we have medical cards in our states, would we be allowed to come and visit you then? On Absolutely. You could, okay. You can certainly come to and visit anytime. I'm happy to show you our all of our facilities. But if you wanted to come and purchase, like I said, the tribe has its own marijuana control commission. You could swing over there. Uh, you don't need to bring a doctor's recommendation if you have your card, because we know that in, if you're from a different state and you have the card, clearly you've got it from them. But if you bring that plus the uh, fee to get the license, we'll print you a Flandre Sandy Sioux Tribal uh, Marijuana card. You can purchase that day. I've never been to South Dakota, Elizabeth. Oh, I think we no. need a trip in our, <laughs> in so our future. BC and the sovereign nations are the two that can accept other reciprocity with medical cards. Those right. are the only, I mean, only here. Those are the only two places I know that will accept reciprocity. And it makes no sense. I mean, especially in the state of South Dakota, where there's so much tourism. I mean, we have, you know, the beautiful Black Hills, which the tribes hold sacred, and there's hunting opportunities and quite a few things like that. People are used to having access to safe cannabis products. I mean, it's it's something that if you if it's commonplace, if you are in a legalized state, that you can go and grab these whenever you need them. You know, somebody's going cross country from you know, in an RV from you know Florida to Washington state or something like that, there's kind of a, a dead zone where people aren't able to get their products. And we'd like them to be able to stop here and get what they need so that their uh, conditions would continue to be alleviated while they're traveling. And that if we can protect them, right? Because we know that if they're in the middle of the country somewhere and they get pulled over, even if they have their medical card in some state, it's not protecting them there. They're still holding an illegal sub uh, schedule one substance. And so there's so much here that needs to, <laughs> we still so much work that needs to be done, really. And I can't thank you enough, Seth, for really just taking the time to explain to us all that goes into what you're doing. And definitely would like our listeners to know how they can find out more about you and how they can support what you're doing. Absolutely. So we have a website that we've uh, we've developed. It's nativenationsenterprises.com. I'm happy to share that with you to give to the anybody who's listening. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of our information is on there, but we're continuing to work with, um, like I said, we had a, a videographer and a photographer come out. We're trying to get more information out to everybody about what a solid program we have here in Flandreau. Uh for instance, we brought the South Dakota legislature out over the summer to say, this is what we do here. You know, here's why we do it. Um, we've even pointed out several things in their own system that they don't have, uh, which makes, you know, we're not operating to prove anybody wrong. We're just doing the best practices, learn from multiple jurisdictions. And the state is failing in certain respects. And the biggest one is testing. So we've, we've actually licensed facility or licensed a portion of one of our buildings to a third-party testing company called Cannabis Chem Lab. South Dakota um, laboratory, only one in our state right now who's testing products. And uh, we basically allow them to come in and test our products so that when somebody comes and purchases something, we can say, yes, this has no heavy metals. This has no mold, mildew, yeast, 
and here's the potency so that they know exactly what they're getting. The state of South Dakota is not requiring testing results until July 1st of this year, and they're only testing for potency. You know, what? how much THC? Wow, that's crazy. In our states, right. they are testing it to the nth degree. See, yes, they yeah. are. <laughs> Holy cow. I was saying to, you know, some of the folks on the inter-marijuana committee, I said, that's the least important test in my mind. Right. I mean, that, that provides no, no safety to a patient who's looking to get products. You need to be testing for all the other stuff that I listed, the heavy metals and you know, E. coli and all the other contaminants that could potentially be in this product, not mm-hmm. whether it's strong or not. And exactly. that's even been further from down the road from them. Wow. We've been in the news a few times too. Just a Google search will, all of our local news has done a really nice job of helping to give a, a proper narrative of what we're doing uh, versus, you know, all of the speculation that comes about. I mean, it's, I think there's a concept from non-tribal folks that tribes are doing all this, running this, you know, quasi, um, you know, criminal enterprise to, you know, stash all of this money. And it's, it's really not that, I mean, this, this funding that's come in or, you know, the, the revenue that we've generated from a strongly regulated program has gone to a myriad of things to help tribal members during the COVID crisis um, to doing a lot of stuff that simply wasn't able to be funded before. You know, we've done um, road projects, things like just things that people need that we didn't get federal funding for before. Like a justice center, we don't have our own jailing facility. We've been trying to get one for decades, and we now may have an opportunity to put up a justice center so that we, and using cannabis funds, I mean, there's there's no other funding source. Um, another instance that we're using some funding for is uh, last year we, we testified for a missing and murdered indigenous persons bill in the state of South Dakota that would be basically funded um, through whatever source we could find and be operated by the, uh, you know, the state attorney general as a liaison position to kind of coordinate where, where are all these missing indigenous people going in our state? There's huge sex trafficking in our area. There's, you know, high you know, drug, and I wouldn't say cannabis, but methamphetamine, fentanyl, that type of thing that basically ends up having people, you know, lost. There's just so many missing persons all the time in South Dakota and across the country. So what we said is they were battling over it in the state of South Dakota about who was going to fund this. And they said the tribes weren't coming to the table, but the tribe, you know, the Flandre Sandy Sioux Tribes Executive Committee had brought this to their attention and they said, we'll fund half the position for two years. Wow. It's about putting, you know, truly, you know, your money where your mouth is and the tribes are willing to step up and make that happen. Because it benefits everybody, not just Flandreau. That's right. Well, we're going to be coming to visit you, Seth. Yeah. You've, you've convinced me. We need to come see this for ourselves. Really appreciate you taking the time today and sharing with us. So thank you again so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you both. This has been a lot of fun. And please come out whenever you'd like. Oh, it's I love that. Busy, it, uh, in the summertime, it's really gorgeous. So feel free to come. We'll wait till like. it's warm. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you again to Seth from Native Nations Cannabis for joining us today on The Vine. We appreciate all of our listeners for tuning in. For cannabis and psychedelic news, join us online at plantmediaproject.com. Together, we can end the stigma around plant medicine.